Hi friend, if you love the information you hear in the podcast, then you will love the free mini series of videos that I've put together just for you. It's all about the biblical blueprint for health and teaches you exact principles I've taught to thousands of Christian women that result in weight loss, better sleep, increased energy, clearer skin, and sharper brains. You can go to thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries to grab this free set of short, powerful teachings that will show you how to create better health God's way. It's at thechristiannutritionist.com slash miniseries. Go check it out now. Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian Nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? I am absolutely thrilled to have Joel Salatin on the podcast today with us. I recently shared that I had the honor to speak at the God's Good Table event at Polyface Farm, his beautiful place in Virginia. It had been on my bucket list of places to visit, and so it was so thrilling to get to go. My husband and I got to meet Joel, go on a tour of the farm, eat the best chicken I've ever had straight off the farm, meet lots of other like-minded people who love the Lord, love food, and want to be good stewards of land and animal. Joel is pretty much considered the world's most famous farmer. He refers to himself as a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. That's a lot to unwind there. He's published 15 books, travels all over the world spreading the good news of profitable and sustainable land and animal stewardship. He produces fantastic meat, and he's just a down-home, super nice guy. Welcome, Joel Salatin, to the Christian Health Club podcast. Thank you, Chelsea. It's truly a delight and an honor to be with you. Well, I think of the same Bible verse when I think of you as I do when I think of my husband, which is this. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. And that comes from Proverbs 12.10. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to give a little kind of introduction here. Just thinking about all of this, thinking about interviewing you. Remind me, when I moved from Houston, because I was a city girl through and through, I moved from Houston to this ranch out in West Texas 25 years ago. I knew nothing about animal husbandry. I had no understanding of land stewardship. I never connected with my food with my creator. And that move was obviously a huge catalyst and influence on the path that has led me to what I'm doing today. I get to have an up-close and personal view into the beautiful design of our creator and how the earth nourishes the animal and the animal nourishes us. And it's I think it's something people take for granted they turn a blind eye to, and they even reject. I had never really thought about the dichotomy between the creation worshipers and the creator worshipers until I read your book, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. And I would love for you to talk about what you've experienced with that in your life 
and in your work. And so with that, I will just let you jump off and take it from there. <laughs> uh, well, this, this really came to me poignantly, probably the most dramatic time was I was doing a speech at UC Berkeley in California. And if you know about UC Berkeley, you know that it's, that it's a hotbed of, of liberalism and kind of developed the Viet, started the Vietnam War protests. And so I go out there and I'm, I'm speaking to a couple hundred, 300 students, grad students actually. And I do my normal creation, sanctity of life. I mean, I don't wear it on my, my, my sleeve, but I, I attribute to God and, and that sort of thing, did my thing. And I got done and I got a standing ovation. The two professors who asked me to come out spun me around in a, in a, in a, in a, we went out for ice cream afterwards. And as soon as we got outside, they, they stopped me on the sidewalk there and they said, we have a confession to make. I thought, oh boy, this is, this is an odd thing. They said, we were scared to death for you. I said, well, why? They said, because, because we knew some of the things that you would say. And we have a, we have a, a tradition here at Berkeley started during the Vietnam war protests that when a speaker says something that you don't like, you hiss, you hiss at so they, they have this this snake hiss deal to voice their displeasure at what a at what a speaker has said, and and they said this is they combined the two professors I don't know what twenty years of of, of time there at the university said this is the first time we have ever heard a lecture at UC Berkeley in our time here where a speaker used the word God respectfully. Now it's fine if you want to swear that's no problem. But if you use it, if you use the word God respectfully, you get hissed. This is the first time that has not happened. And, and it just struck me at that moment that perhaps this was the first time these students had heard a Christian who was, who wrestled with the stewardship mandate, the biblical stewardship mandate, who wasn't just Oh, a bunch of tree hugger, greeny weeny, earth muffin, whatever's, but 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 rather actually actually trying to be consistent. And and they respected that. They honored that. And I thought, what a tragedy that the faith community has lost that level of 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 equity in our culture that we are perceived as the destroyers, as the as the the environmental rapists, as the 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 exploiters, rather than the nurturers, the caretakers, the stewards of God's creation, that is a that is a terrible situation we put ourselves in, and it compromises then our ability to to represent God in our culture because we we're 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 carrying this awful persona of well, they don't care about the environment. They don't care about good food. They don't care about any of this stuff. And, and, and that's highly unfortunate. So that, that's kind of where I, I really understood the imperative that the faith community needs to, needs to work on is this imperative of we need to gain that high moral ethical road so that we can be the repository of stewardship of God's of God's caretakers, as opposed to the destroyers of our nest. And you feel like there's a pretty wide 
chasm there between in the Christian community. You don't feel like you don't feel like we're representing well, I guess. You would yeah, say. yeah, 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 Chelsea. I, I do believe there's a, a wide chasm there because again, I most of my traveling, I'm not a I'm not a evangelist or anything, and so most of my traveling and speaking is is done in crowds that are not that are not faith based by any means. In fact, in fact, I just spoke uh, last week in Texas at a university doing a lecture series, and I, I, you read you read my little moniker there as you introduced me, the Christian Libertarian Environmentalist Capitalist Lunatic Farmer, and of course when you do a lecture series you provide your own bio and stuff. Of course, that's on the bio. It always elicits a good grin and all that. And I've found it to be disarmingly warm and fuzzy and helps. And and, and in the introduction, the lady that was introducing me, I was reading the bio. And when it came to that, she said he's a libertarian environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer. She, she would not, would not use the word Christian at the, even though it was written in the bio. And that again just shows how much the 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 disdain, not hatred, but but disdain, is in the in the secular community toward naming Christ as as part of our persona. And so, yes, I think the chasm is big. In fact, in fact, I believe in the average church when somebody. If somebody dares to ask at the potluck, how about we don't have styrofoam? Could we have paper? Or better yet, how about we we go we we just get a bunch of discarded plates from down at the Salvation Army thrift store and stock them in the kitchen, and then we don't have any trash at all when we're done with the potluck? If you say that in the average church in America, you'll be hauled in by the deacons and elders and questioning what are you some sort of liberal commie pinko earth muffin tree worshiper tree and and you you can't even start the conversation because the 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 disdain that the christian community has for the environmentalist community is so strong and so ubiquitous that in the average church you can't even talk about these issues because 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 you you immediately fall into a stereotype and a label that the faith community abhors. Uh, I have to ask, where were you in Texas? Just south of Austin. Okay. Well, if you were near Austin, that's not super surprising. (laughs) You need to come a couple hours west, Joel. Come out to where we are in West Texas and... We will say, we'll call you a Christian all day long. There's nothing else here. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Well, I, I, I pulled some, I, I I love the, the marvelous pigness of pigs. It's such a great book that I think all Christians should read, but I pulled some quotes out of there that I, I think are, I would just like to share and then let you kind of take it from there, you you wrote, I find it fascinating that sexual abstinence is front and center on your Bible study agendas, but junk food orgies are just fine. You also wrote, our interaction with the physical defines and establishes our relationship with God. How you care for God's physical stuff reflects how you care for his spiritual stuff. Love that. 
and you said, while Christians aren't the only ones abusing God's creation, we are the ones who should do it the least. And I think, I don't, I don't know that a lot of Christians maybe realize that's what they're doing. I think here, a lot of people will listen to this podcast. You have a sympathetic ear here in this podcast, but um, I don't think people make those connections between stewardship when we're talking about land and animal and the food that we're eating. So, I mean, what are your, how would you speak to somebody on that? Or, or what are the things that we're missing? What are the things Christians are, are missing? Yeah, I, I think, I think what, the Christian, what the Christians are missing is the integrated, the integrated physical and spiritual. So we, we can thank St. Augustine for his dualism if you want to do a little bit of historical digging, but St. Augustine presented this idea that, that spiritual is good and all physical is, is fallen, the Garden of Eden and the fall and the curse of the earth and blah, blah, blah. And so all physical is bad and spiritual is good. And this was known as dualism, where you, you separate the physical from the spiritual. And, and this, of course, ran very consistent with 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 Greek and Roman compartmentalized thinking and and so the West to this day, which is the West is still a product of this Roman Greek idea of they, they separated the deities, they separated a- activities and and their, their deities, Roman gods and Greek gods were as devious as anybody could possibly be. And, and these were the gods and these were the divine beings. And, and it was okay to be devious if you were divine. And, and so, so the, this, this, this disconnect, this, this duality carries on still today to where we, we have this idea that, that as long as our doctrine is right, it doesn't matter how, the, how we live. And of course, Francis Schaeffer dealt with this when he asked how, how should we then live? And so what, what I would suggest is that there is no dualism. If you want a good example, biblically, well, let's, ta- let's take a, a, a kind of a spiritual word that we use. You don't hear it on the street very much. Glory. Glory is kind of a spiritual word. And, and we, we use it for God. We use it for the, the, the glory of God. In fact, in the catechism, what's the, you know, what's the end of man is to to bring glory to God. Okay. So, so we use it, we use it in spiritual context, but we don't use it physical, but the Bible doesn't make that kind of distinction. The Bible talks about the glory of kingdoms, the glory of Kings, the glory of stars, the glory of things celestial, the glory of things terrestrial, the glory of uh, women is their hair, the glory of old men is their gray head, the glory of young men is their strength. I mean, it, 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 it's got all sorts of glory, glory to, to physical things. And so this is just an example of how in, in our Western Christianity, we have allowed ourselves to just subconsciously get pulled into this idea that, that, that there is a segregation between the physical and the, and the spiritual. Interestingly, 1 Corinthians, was it 1031, I think, says whether there's Whoever therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If I were writing that, I would have said, whether soever therefore you 
address your theology to a Presbyterian or a Baptist, do all to the glory of God. I would have, I would have put some sort of a spiritual discussion on that. But he says, whatever you eat or drink, I mean, the most mundane physical things of life even do that. He says he knows when a, when a sparrow falls. He knows the numbers of our head. He says the, the Solomon in all his glory. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a man with glory, okay? In all his glory was not arrayed as beautiful as a, as a lily of the valley, as a flower, as a God-made flower. And so, and so the, this, this notion that we can separate the two is, is, is not only, it's not only unbiblical. What it does is it opens up the door to, to allow us activity, to allow us to do activities that are completely contrary to our theology. And so I ask the question, does our menu stack up with what we say we believe in the pew? We say in the pew, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, be a good neighbor, that sort of thing. But then does our menu support a food system that that is not neighbor friendly, that stinks up the neighborhood, that pollutes the water for people to drink, that 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 mistreats people in a factory in a factory system. That anyway, I, I could go on and on, but 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 the point is, is our menu consistent with what we say we believe in the pew? And that seems so simple. It seems, it it seems so elementary, and yet, and yet, in most of our churches. We can't even have the discussion because then suddenly you're not you're not spiritual because you're attaching physicality to to spiritualism. And I believe that the the physical creation is an object lesson of spiritual truth. That one of the, that the problem is let's take let's take something uh, more esoteric like love. Okay, you you can't love you can't use the word love without an object. Love has to have an object. And so how do you use a term like forgiveness or redemption or, or abundance or holiness without an object? And so I, I believe that the, the creation, the physical creation, offered an object for all of these divine, all of these divine characteristics or ideas and so that's why Jesus spoke in parables, because it's hard for us to grasp to grasp kind of academic theological ideas without a physical framework. And so you have the faith the size of a mustard seed. You have abundance of the sower in the seed. You have the redemption of the prodigal son. You, you, know, you, have, you have the good Samaritan showing who a neighbor is. I mean, these are all these are all physical lessons to teach spiritual truth. And so when I see people leaving our farm, I want them discussing in the car their visit. I want them to say, oh, we just saw forgiveness. Oh, we just saw abundance. Oh, we just saw neighborliness. We just saw love. I want them to be able to see that as they exit the farm. And that's the idea of an object lesson. Okay. So I think the way that you practice and run your farm, just for people that may not be aware of you, is significantly different than the way that most people 
are running their farms and ranches. And so what you're speaking to is is bringing those spiritual truths, the love of the animal, the abundance, keeping the land abundantly producing all of all of these things like honoring the soil, honoring creation, this, the, the way that you treat the animals and all, all of those things that you do is so different from what we see most producers, farmers and ranchers the way that they are running their operations. And so when you were talking about stinking up things for your neighbor, you're talking about maybe practices. I don't, I, I think you're talking about like maybe a CAFO, like a concentrated animal feeding operation or things, or maybe even farmers who are repeatedly planting year after year without giving the land rest and ruining the soil, compromising the soil, all of those things. And so just kind of clarifying that for the audience in case they're, they're not familiar, but I have heard you say that as Christians, a lot of times we're kind of pulling that dominion card when it comes to animals, right? Like we got, we've got the yeah. dominion mm-hmm. and that you have those, the creation worshipers are worried about the treatment of animals. And so a lot of them are like, well, we can't eat animals because we, you can't kill an animal and you can't, they're, they're not treated well. And so that's just one of those examples of where we're really butting heads and that that is that is such a a glaring issue for us and i think also as christians i've heard you also pose this question does god care about food does god care about the food that we eat does god care about the way that the animal that you're eating was raised and of course when you say it like that it's like well sure he did <laughs> well I, I, of course he does but i think a lot of people don't even pause to consider that or think that i think a lot of people in that are like well jesus declared all food clean and so i'm gonna eat my doritos i'm gonna eat this Mm -hmm. you know chicken that lever saw the light of day and all of and you know and those things and don't don't give it a second thought and i think that is where we could do better right yeah yeah but i i couldn't agree with you more and i i think that and and again, I've been in all sorts of situations and spend actually most of my time with the the non faith environmental sector of our of our world, and and I think I think it would shock most Christians to believe to understand that when when a Christian goes to a for example a right to life rally and then stops off at Happy Meals for the kids on the way home, they the non-faith community views that just as hypocritically as we would view a an abortionist who who wants to protect a tree from being cut or a baby whale from being or a, a baby seal from being uh, killed. We look at that and say, "How in the world can you be more interested in protecting the tree or the or the baby seal than than an unborn baby?" We just find that unspeakably hypocritical, and they view with the same degree of hypocrisy when we go to a Right to Life rally and stop off at Happy Meals on the way home because they know that that Happy Meal was raised in a concentrated animal feeding operation that ha- that 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 carries the basic philosophy that life is fundamentally mechanical and not biological. That the only question is how can we raise this chicken or this pig or cow or whatever, tomato, whatever it is, faster, fatter, bigger, cheaper. 
and it's viewed as just a, an inanimate pile of protoplasm to be manipulated, however cleverly hubris can imagine to manipulate it. And that kind of philosophy permeates the entire industrial food complex. And, 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 and thinking people know that. And, and they just find it abhorrent that Christians who claim to care for creation, who claim to care for life, have such a cavalier approach when it actually comes to choosing what life comes on their plate and choosing their own provenance and sustenance. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to create a cult here. I'm not saying it's sin to have a Snickers bar. It might be sinful to have six in a day, but, but and I don't have the answers. Don't, don't even think that I have all the answers, but I want to wrestle with this. And I think, I think it honors God for us to have these discussions and to wrestle with as, as, as Schaefer's, how shall we then live? I mean, this was, this, this is the question. How shall we then live? What, what does our belief actually look like in our activity? And, and, and we have the principle of the narrow way and within the New Testament. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way to life. And, and yet in the faith community, we, we eat like, we invest like, we educate in so many ways. We recreate like. I mean, look, when the, when the church has, a, has a, a, an evening, whatever, men's group, and say, we're just going to get together, watch movies, and eat junk. That, that is, that's not funny. That's not a joke. And yet, and yet churches do it cavalierly and, you know, what matters? Who cares? And I suggest, again, if God knows when a sparrow falls and knows the hairs of our head are numbered, he definitely cares what we're eating, what we're doing and, and how we're acting and, and all that. And so, so yeah, and, 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 and don't think that I can't, I, I enjoy a joke. I laugh. I, I, I don't want this to be more than it is, but I'd like to be free to have the conversation, to not be branded some sort of a, a, a creation worshiper, a Gaia, a Gaia disciple, simply by asking, do we need to use styrofoam? Do, do we have, do we have to use uh, pesticides on our food? Do we have to put mRNA in our chicken and, and, and beef. Those questions are legitimate questions and, and, and should not brand me as some sort of a, a, a creation worshiper. We, we worship the creator and as part of that creator worship that defines our stewardship. Listen, if I were God and I owned this world, I would not be happy with a return on investment of a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. I wouldn't be happy with eagle eggs that don't hatch. I wouldn't be happy with three-legged salamanders and infertile frogs and collapsing pollinators. That would not make me happy. And I think that the Christian community has, again, lost its, its, its cultural emotional equity by not by not dealing with that mandate as as caretakers of God's creation. How about infertile people because of all the poor food that we're eating? <laughs> yeah, that's 
He's probably not too happy about that either. Since you, I'm glad you touched, you brought up the mRNA because that's something that I, I wanted to talk about when I, when we were there at Polyface and we got to go on the, on the farm tour and you were explaining everything. Somebody asked this question about mRNA and asked you to explain that. And I thought you did a, a wonderful job. And I know that is a concern for many people. Like I, I have felt like meat has been one of our more safe choices of food to eat because now there's so many things sprayed in pesticide. There's glyphosate and everything. And then I've always told people that, well, I don't know, I, I tend to be more animal-based. I, I love meat. I eat a lot of meat. But gosh, now I'm now it's like they're messing that up. So could you explain what mRNA is and, and what that means? And is it in all our animal products and just all that stuff? Yeah. So mRNA, obviously, is nobody heard about this until until COVID. And and but it turns out that mRNA has been around for quite some time. It, it, it started going in. So there was a there was there's a as anybody who's listening probably knows, there's been a huge consumer backlash against the use of antibiotics. And if you're if you work in a hospital, you know about MRSA and C. diff. These are both categorized as superbugs that were created by the indiscriminate use of antibiotics within humans and in animals. You have to understand that that animals historically have used over twice as many antibiotics as as humans, and so and so the 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 scientific evidence is starting to build that this subtherapeutic antibiotic use in in animal agriculture is detrimental to uh, human, and we now have all sorts of superbugs and resistance to it and that sort of thing, and so. As the industry started feeling the pushback and feeling, oh boy, we're, we're probably going to, these things are probably going to be Ill illegal sometime in the future, they began looking around and, and dis discovered mRNA, which is actually not an antibiotic. It's not a vaccine. It's a, it's a genetic manipulation. It could never occur in that nature. And, and this is another, God is, God is a God of order. He doesn't like chaos. And everything from sexual identity to those kind of issues to a breakdown in, in government to to profligate debt economically, these are all chaos. These are all in indicators of chaos and lack of order. And so the Genesis, the Genesis system where the seed produces after its kind is a is a pretty ordered system. And with our cleverness, we humans have been able to break through that after its kind order and create things that there are actually a lot of of God-given boundaries to not occur. And we have overrun those boundaries, overrun those protective guardrails in our genius and cleverness, and have created things that can never happen in in natural procreation. And mRNA is one of those. And so M mRNA came in as a substitute to antibiotic use. And it's, it started being used in poultry in about 2012 because chickens have the highest level of antibiotic use because they're, they're so confined in these factory houses. And it started in about 2015 in pigs because they're the next most confined animal. And finally, in about 2020, 
it started coming into beef animals. And so we have now all three primary meat species routinely being given or, or at least being given mRNA. Now, the industry says, well, they haven't been licensed, but there are all sorts of exceptions for experimentation, for research, for all sorts of things to use, experimental things. Some of you may remember when, when bovine um, somatotropin was used, genetically modified bovine somatotropin, RBGH, it was known, in dairy cows back 15 years ago. And that was in milk for, I think it was eight years before it actually ever appeared on the label, all under experimental trial use. And so, so a lot of things are allowed to be used experimentally for uh, a long period of time and almost ubiquitously before we ever hear about it. And that's exactly where we are with mRNA. And we can all thank Dr. Joe Mercola, who broke this back in just February of this year. Even people as whatever supposedly in the know as, as I am, I had no idea that we had this going on and this record was happening until Dr. Joe Mercola broke it. So kudos to him. And, and, and we're, we're in his debt for breaking this open to us. I mean, what in the world? They can just put this stuff in there, like, experimentally. I, it's just, it's mind-boggling to me. I, it, without having to uh, test it and see how it's going to affect us, I, yeah. I don't understand. Does that mean that all, so do we just need to expect that all of our meat that we buy at the store is, has mRNA? I mean, is it just? Yeah, yeah, I, I, think, that a, yeah, I, I think that's the way to, I think that's the way to go now, which, which really is is a bummer if you're going to eat out or things like that. So again, again, you you can you can be as as whatever aggressive on this as you want to be, and and I'm not saying I I'm sure I've eaten some mRNA meat because I've eaten out a couple times and it just but but fortunately, your body has mechanisms to 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 combat a buildup of these things. So as long as you keep it extremely low, and, and look, if you want to go to immunizations protocols, we had very few issues back in the 60s when children got, what, three or four spread out over four or five years. It just it wasn't a big deal. But now where we're, we're lumping these together and they're getting 60 of them before four years old, that's where we're seeing this escalation. So the, 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 balance, the balance here is, is important. And, and I, I, I kind of go by the 80-20 rule just to survive. 80% eat right and intentional and do it right. 20% gives you the ability to, to eat out with some friends once in a while, go to a, a niece's three-year-old birthday party and, and eat cake and ice cream and, 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 and be, and not be a bore. And so again, this, this creates a little bit of balance and gives you a little bit of forgiveness. So you can be a, a normal person once in a while and not just be a, a pain in everybody's side. And, and then you just trust in the intentionality of the rest of it to keep your immune system 
functioning at peak and, and deal with whatever you have in there and, and you exercise, you sweat. One of the best ways to your body has of getting rid of toxins and pathogens is sweat. So, so work up a sweat routinely, really profusely sweat. And, and, and that's extremely, extremely helpful. And, and just look at that as, okay, now I can go to the pizza party with my grandson. And, and I mean, that, that sounds, if you take this to an extreme, that, that even sounds hypocritical, but I think that's where just gentleness and wisdom and, and, and balance comes in. There, there, there is diplomacy. There's diplomacy in the Christian spirit. And if you have no diplomacy, you won't be real attractive to a lot of people. Right. We can't all go around being freaks. I mean, and it's just <laughs> about our food. I mean, it's just not good yeah. for, I, I know a lot of people that I work with, it's just, they're so stressful. Like, I can't eat anything. Everything is compromised. Yeah. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. I know, I know it, we, but we can't be perfect. We have to do no. the best we can. That's right. Grace, prayer, all those mm. things for sure. I have a question for you. Do you, because I generally tell people, if they're eating out, if they're buying meat at the grocery store and they're on a budget and who's not these days, I mean, meat is so expensive, but that beef is probably more forgiving because of it being a ruminant animal. It's probably going to be a little bit more forgiving in the toxin arena than maybe a conventional chicken or chicken or pork. Oh, um, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? I'm so, and, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm so what glad. Do you think? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Absolutely, there's no no question that beef is the least the least susceptible to things because even I mean even a feedlot beef still spent a year out on pasture on grass, and whereas a chicken or a pig didn't spend one day in the sunshine, one day on grass, one day anywhere except in in a fecal a fecal particulate soup. And so, so yeah, I, I, I literally never eat chicken out. That is the taboo. Never eat chicken. Occasionally, if I have to, I might eat pork, but I'm, but yeah, if, if I'm eating out, it's going to be beef. Or if I'm within a hundred miles of the ocean, I'll eat fish. If I'm not within a hundred miles of the ocean, I won't eat fish. But that, that, and that's just my thing. I'm not, I'm not projecting that on anybody else. That's just part of my little, commitment to save the oceans and, 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 and patronize local food. So yeah, beef, beef is definitely of, of the three big ones. Beef is definitely the good one. Now, and then you go to seafood, you go to shrimp, Vietnamese shrimp is probably as bad as American chicken. And they basically got, and those foreign countries don't have the restrictions on chemical use like we do in the U S and so you want to be really careful about industrially grown foodstuffs from, from especially places like Indochina, uh, those, those low countries there. But yeah, beef, beef is definitely the most forgiving of all of them. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And that's what I tell people. And we're, we're grass-fed cattle ranchers. And, and I even tell people, listen, if, you, if, if that's not in your budget, if it's not accessible to you, and you're at the store, then yeah, go for the beef because it's going to be most forgiving. And, and, and that's biblically, we look at 
what God instructed us to eat. And I mean, people are so afraid of red meat these days. And I'm like, look, he told us to eat ruminants. This is all red meat. He saw what was coming. He saw how we were going to jack up our food so bad. So anyway, I, I think that's helpful advice. And I'm glad to hear you say that. When we were there, you were talking about how when animals are in the feedlot, and you were talking about cattle, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but you were talking about when they're they're confined and they're in their poop and they're not moving and they're eating all of this like genetically modified corn and soy, though, how it affects their digestive system or you were talking about their pH or mm-hmm. and how and how that was creating more need for antibiotics. And I just that really stuck out to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? And can yeah, you explain yeah, that? Yeah, I I do. So what what happens is the rumen, the rumen of an herbivore is is quite balanced in pH. And but when it the, the rumen of an herbivore is is basically a it's a sour, it's a big sauerkraut vat, fermentation tank. But when it eats grain, it it acidulates. It becomes much, much more acid. And so, for example, I mean, a great example is E. coli. E. coli is a, is a naturally occurring digestive bacteria that all herbivores carry. But the E. coli that's in the ruminants digestive system is, is there in a relatively neutral pH habitat. And if it happens to get into our system, normally our system will kill it because our digestive system is way more acidic than an herbivore's. And so if a, if a little drop of, of manure even, if we happen to ingest it, we're okay because our acidic system kills that E. coli. The problem is that when an an herbivore is grain-fed, it acidifies the rumen. And so these E. coli, these digestive bacteria, become acclimated to a higher acidic environment. And you got to realize that these microbes, when we talk about these microbes, they go through multi-generations in a day. I mean, think about that, how, how, how slow the, the human generation is. But these guys, I mean, they get birth, they, they go to school, they court, they date, they get married, and they have babies, and they go to nursing homes and die all in an hour. <laughs> okay, so, so there's a dramatic adaptability within the microbial community that we can't even imagine in our in, in larger animals or or in humans. And so that's how these things can morph and adapt so rapidly is because they're going through generations of successional adaptation. I didn't say evolution. I said adaptation. They're going through literally generations of them in a day. And so when the rumen becomes acidulated, you have adaptable capacity within the E. coli to adapt to that more acidic environment fairly rapidly. And guess what? Then when we eat that coli, that E. coli, now it's already acid tolerant. And what would normally be killed in our gut becomes toxic because 
we're not acid enough to kill it off. And that's basically the story behind E. coli and behind numerous of these kinds of things as we change their habitat and what has always been relatively benign or a non-issue suddenly becomes an issue due to the different in, uh, um, environmental habitat under which we've produced that food item. It also doesn't help that acid blockers are one of the most prescribed <laughs> medications for our either. <laughs> right. That's not helpful either, as right. our stomach acid is one of our first lines of defense for our immune system. Yeah, thank you, because that was something I hadn't heard it explained like that before, and I was really fascinated so much. I, I loved, I'm just like picturing where I was at your farm, and we were standing in front of the pig barn. And, and I just loved hearing all that, you know, as my husband is a rancher, I mean, we just ate it up. We loved it. I would love, we're getting up on time now, and I have a few more questions for you, but I wanted you to explain what you mean by the marvelous pigness of pig. I mean, I know you wrote an entire book on it, so you can't, <laughs> you can't tell us everything, but give us, give us the, just kind of the, the quick version of what you mean by that. Um, yeah. Just as it relates to what we're talking about. Sure, sure. So so the idea is the the innate, the distinctive physiological specialness of of beings, whether that being is a microbe or an earthworm or a pig or a tomato or a person, part of God's order is the distinctiveness of all of these beings. They each full we and they fulfill a a, a function, uh, a niche, a place, uh, a place of ministry and service within uh, the ecosystem. And so what we, what we want to do is provide a, pl provide a life, a habitat that fully respects the pigness of the pig a and, and, and the marvelous pigness of the pig. A, a pig is not a chicken. It's not a tomato. It, it, a pig is something entirely different. And so so when we raise our pigs, we raise them in an environment, in a habitat that allows them to dig, to plow, to, to express their pigness, to, to sleep at night, to be in, in, the, in groups that are socially not stressful, all, all these kinds of things. And I would suggest that a, a society that doesn't ask how to respect the pigness of the pig will very soon not ask how to respect the Tomness of Tom or the Chelsea-ness of Chelsea. It's how we respect and honor the least of these that creates an ethical moral framework around which we honor and respect the greatest of these. And this has, this has to do with prejudice. It has to do with, with culture. It has to do with everything. And, and so honoring and respecting the marvelous pigness of pigs is, I believe, one of the, the, the foundation of where we even both honor and respect each other, but then that we even honor and respect God's position, God's uniqueness, God's, God's glory, what, what emanates from God that doesn't emanate from anybody else, uh, a perfect love, perfect forgiveness, perfect holiness perfect justice all these emanate from god and our and our psyche our psyche can wrap 
around that a lot better if we're used to respecting and honoring the pigness of the pig. Ah, I got it. That I love that. I, you took it big. I love it. And it, but I, and I think to kind of, kind of come back full circle to what we were talking about and just creation, worshiping the creation versus the creator and how we will see a lot of people very concerned about animal welfare. And rightly so, because the, the chicken doesn't get to express its chickenness when it's in, crammed in a little cage and it doesn't see light and it can't move and it's so heavy because they bred it to have these big chicken breasts that we get to have on our plate or, or same with the pig or even the, the cow that's in the capo standing in its own poop and eating Skittles and grain and all of these things are, and I think as Christians, when we hear that, we're like, that's horrible. I, I don't want, I don't want that to happen. I mean, I, I love animals and I don't, I don't want that to happen to the animal, but it does. And so I, I think just creating that awareness and having the respect for all of God's creation and being grateful for the way that he created these these animals to nourish us. I mean, this is a part of the design that he made. We're not meant to be vegetarians um, or vegans. Maybe we were in the Garden of Eden, but we got kicked out, everybody, just so you remember. Yeah. So that's not where we are now. And yeah. so just keeping all of this in mind, I think is so incredibly important. Yeah. And, and and if I may say, I've been I've been taken to task by people who say, well, I saw that chicken, I saw that chicken on my plate. It didn't look like he was having a very a respectful life there on the plate. And, and, and so that, that brings up the idea of sacrifice. And so I would simply suggest that it is in the, it is in the respect and honor bestowed upon the animal or the plant in life that, that gives us, that, that, that creates sacredness in the sacrifice of it. The fact is that in order to have life, something has to die. Everything is eating and being eaten. And if you don't believe it, then look in your compost pile, see what's happening. Everything is eating and being eaten. And if you don't think it's happening, lie naked in your flower bed for three days and see what gets eaten. Everything, the, the greatest lie in the world is that we can have life without death. And of course, this has tremendous spiritual applications that only in death comes life. So the, the death of Christ provided life, spiritual life for us. And, and so, so th this is one of the most foundational object lessons of spiritual truth, that life comes out of death, that, that, that a sacrifice is necessary for sustenance. And, and I love this, this idea when I talk to children, say, if you want to really live, you want to really live then you die to self. You serve your, and Jesus talks about this. If you want to live, die to self. And, and so it's in, it's in respecting and honoring the distinctiveness of the being. It's in that, that respectful life that provides sacredness to the sacrifice that it finally lays down its life for somebody else. There's no sacredness when the life has been disrespected and it's been abused and then lays down its life, there's no sacredness. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's sacrilege, that sacrilege of the sacrifice. So if we want to elevate the sacrifice and the sustenance to a place of sacredness, it starts by 
by honoring and respecting the life that was lived prior to the sacrifice and making it a place of sacredness as well. That's how we close that loop. Yes. And and what Polyface Farm is all about is honoring honoring all of these animals and and operating and practicing in a way where the it honors the pigness of the pig and the chickenness of the chicken and the cowness of the cow. And you have found a way to do that. And that's why people come from all over the world to your farm to to learn and to see that in action. And so it can be done. And it's just a beautiful example of stewardship. It's a beautiful place to visit. And so I just encourage people to to go there if you ever get the opportunity, if you're in Virginia, because you welcome people just to, to pop in, right? Yes, yes. We have a uh, 24-7, 365 open door policy. Anybody can come from anywhere in the world to see anything at any time, anywhere, unannounced. And I guarantee you ain't going to get that invitation at a CAFO. <laughs> No, not at all. (laughs) Or some of these other places. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you the anchor questions that I ask everybody. And the first one is, what is your anchor meal, which is your kind of go-to healthy meal that you eat regularly? It's regularly on your menu. Oh, well, my favorite meal of the day is breakfast and and it's, it's raw milk and sausage and eggs and maybe some fruit or something but uh, yeah that's that's the go-to i can i can eat i can eat that any time of day well since i had since you're a farmer and i have you on here i have a question do you get up and because i know y'all get up early and do your work do you eat before you set out to work or do you go do some work and then come back in and eat (laughs) I get up, I get up at daybreak, go out, do chores, and then I come in for breakfast. And that way, that way, Teresa has time to get the house in order and get breakfast on and all that stuff. I mean, if, if I ate before I went, I'm being very sexist here. Yes, I can cook an egg. I can do that if I have to, but we like to eat breakfast together. So if, if I first got up and ate breakfast, she'd have to get up before me. And, and that wouldn't be fair. So I get up first go out and then she can get up and get breakfast and have things ready. So when I walk in the door, I'm hungry and breakfast is ready. That's the way I like to start my day. What time is that that you typically eat in the morning? It would typically be around an hour to an hour and a half after daybreak. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting because I'm always talking about sun and we're always talking about the sun and circadian rhythm and what time we break our fast and what's so anyway, I, I always have said, I don't think, I think farmers get up and they go out and do their chores and they work up some hunger and then they come back in and they eat. So I have you on the phone. So I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to ask you that. <laughs> I love that, but that's a great breakfast. That's a good go-to. Yeah. Breakfast is a real anchor for me. I am, that's usually going to be some kind of eggs and bacon and, or sausage or, or something. So, yep. That's a good hearty breakfast. Love that. How about an anchor verse? This might be, I don't know, maybe you have one that you just go to, but for yeah. some people this is difficult. But do you have a verse that just is, resonates with you or is kind of your go-to yeah, Bible verse? I, I do. It's, it's 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. And if you'll remember the context, this is when Saul 
Saul didn't wait for Samuel and he went in to he went in and made the sacrifices instead of letting Samuel the priest do it. And 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 he he didn't kill all the Amalekites. He kept the king alive, King Agag alive, and all that. And and Samuel said to Saul in verse twenty-two of First Samuel fifteen, he says, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness." is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And, and for me, that is just such a powerful thing because we, we, we assume that we can get in good graces. I mean, this is, this is obviously, <laughs> yeah, this is human reasoning, right? We think we can get in good graces. Oh, if I just if I just pray some more, if I just give some more offering, if I just light a candle, if I just uh, whatever. And, and, and God's not interested in that. He's not interested in that at all. He's interested in obedience and listening to his voice. Yep. So good. So good. Thank you for sharing that. No one's shared that one before. I appreciate that so much. Joel, it has been just such an honor again to have you. I just, I thank you for the work that you do, the advocacy, the example that you set so that people can see how it's done and how we can do this, just the awareness you create. Again, I recommend that everybody pick up The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. It is, it's a great book and it goes over so many of the things that we talked about today, really fleshes it out. I know that Maureen will probably be hosting more events with God's Good Table out there in the future. That's how I came to get to visit there. And that was really wonderful. I know, I know you'll hold all kinds of events out there throughout the year. So look at the schedule, check it out. If you're in, the, um, in that area of Virginia, absolutely stop by. So worth it. Thank you again, Joel, for your time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you have a healthy and blessed week. And I will talk to you soon. Hi, everyone. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.